Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Each week on The Convo Couch, I'll be chatting to a wide range of women writers, focusing on the heart, craft and business of writing, along with a new release feature author each month. You can listen to the episodes on any of the major podcasting platforms or directly from the Rights for Women website, where you'll also find the transcript of each chat and the extensive Rights for Women backlist. On a personal writing note, my current release is All We Dream. If you'd like to know more about it or any of my books, you can check out my website at pamelacook.com.au for more information. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. This week's episode is designed to be a business of writing episode, but the author who I am speaking to today is actually one who covers all aspects of the writing spectrum that I cover on Rights for Women, being the business, the heart and the craft of writing. So I'm going to be talking to this author about all three of those things today. The author in question is Sophie Hanna. Sophie is a Sunday Times and New York Times best-selling writer of crime fiction, published in 49 languages and 51 territories. Her books have sold millions of copies worldwide. In 2014, with the blessing of Agatha Christie's family, Sophie published a new Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, which was a bestseller in more than 15 countries. She has since published two more Poirot novels, Closed Casket and The Mystery of Three Quarters, both of which were instant Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. Sophie's latest novel is called Haven't They Grown? It's a psychological sort of thriller which I'm currently listening to on audio and I'm almost at the end. All I want to do is actually finish it so I can find out the answer to the mystery that Sophie poses in this novel. She's also the founder of the Dream Author Coaching Program for Writers. And that is actually how I came across Sophie, through another friend who had joined the Dream Author Program. I heard about it and I joined the Dream Author Program. And I have to say that Sophie's teaching and Sophie's attitude towards writing is actually quite transformative. She lives with her husband, children and dog in Cambridge, Brewster, who features quite often on her podcast and uh, webinars. I'm really excited to talk to Sophie and I know that everyone's going to get so much out of this episode. So Sophie, welcome to Rights for Women. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. So to start with Sophie, could you give us a little bit of a rundown of how your writing career started, how you first got into writing and how your publication history then developed? Yeah, well, I I started writing really very, very young and it was just like something I enjoyed doing. It was always my main hobby as a kid. I always had a lot of books and read a lot. So when I was about six or seven, I started writing little poems and tiny little stories and, you know, nothing, nothing full length or anything, but I 
you know, got quite hooked on writing. And that carried on throughout my whole childhood, throughout my teenage years. And it was really the only thing that I was interested in doing, apart from like hanging out with my friends. I've always been very sociable. So my, my social life, obviously, as a teenager, that was like my top priority. But in terms of like any serious interests writing was always it and reading reading and writing so from the minute I started writing I basically didn't stop and so all through school all through sixth form college all through university I was writing 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 you know poetry stories mainly poetry and mystery stories which is funny because that's what I ended up doing yeah um, I just always did it as a hobby and it never for a second occurred to me to think about, you know, whether I would ever make money from it or whether it could ever be my career. Never even occurred to me because in my brain it was so firmly fixed as my hobby, the thing I loved doing while I was supposed to be doing other things. My teachers throughout school and college were were fairly annoyed with me because at my school subjects I didn't really work hard at all I always just sort of did the bare minimum to get by so every parent's evening my parents would come home cross because they'd been told that I had still yet again done no work <laughs> so like I was neglecting all the things I should have been doing and writing instead and so I think I thought I, I just sort of subliminally and subconsciously assumed that that's how it would always be, that I would go through life with something I was supposed to be doing, which after college and university would presumably be a job, but that writing would always be my hobby and what I spent my mental energy on. And in fact, because I expected that to happen, that then was what happened when I left university. I deliberately got a job at the most quiet, sleepy, undemanding organisation I could find, uh, and I deliberately set out to get a job that I could leave behind at 5pm and not think about at all until I turned up the next day. I didn't want any kind of career that would require me to care about it mm. uh, or to devote mental attention to it because I wanted to devote all my mental energy to my writing. So that that was basically my plan. And then gradually and unintentionally on my part, my writing kind of took off and became successful. And eventually it got to the point where I was like, hmm, it does seem as though this could be actually my career as well as my hobby. Do I want to do that? And right. I remember feeling weird, very weird the day I gave in my notice at the job I was doing at that point and thinking, hmm, my hobby is now going to become my full-time, you know, career and means of supporting myself that it just felt really weird yeah it would have I think your first published pieces were poetry would that be right basically yes but there was one sort of unusual thing that snuck in before I'd had poems published in magazines and as a kid I sent a few poems off to newspapers and magazines so I had that but my first published kind of volume was actually a children's picture book. And I didn't think of myself as a children's writer, and I, I hadn't really written stuff for children. But I just wrote this one-off thing based on an idea that my husband had. I was cooking one night, and a bit of carrot peel, I was peeling a carrot, 
bit of carrot peel landed in a glass of water that was next to the sink. And my husband said, look at that carrot peel in that water. It looks like a goldfish. And I looked at it, it really did, because it was kind of like moving around the water. And I thought, that really does look like a goldfish. So then I had an idea for a children's book about a boy who plays a trick on his grandma and gives her a bit of carrot peel in a goldfish bowl. And because her eyesight's bad, she thinks it's a goldfish. It all has a very happy ending. Right. Uh, but I, actually the first book I published, Carrot the Goldfish, which was a children's book. But then my, my next published work was a pamphlet, which that's like a book without a spine. I think that's what um, I'm thinking of, yeah. yeah. That's the one I've talked about in Dream Author. So it was a pamphlet of poetry. And it was about 30 poems in a little slim volume, a limited edition of 200 copies. But that was really, really exciting to me because it was my first book of poetry. And poetry at that point was really where my writing passion was. So it was nice to publish a children's book, but that didn't really fit in with my idea of the kind of writer I truly was, whereas poetry was where I was at at that point. And as I say over and over again in Dream Author, when I got that letter saying that they were going to publish my poetry pamphlet, I didn't even make a conscious decision, but I spontaneously decided, this is it. This is success. I have had a success. I'm going to be published. I'm now a successful writer. And as you know, in Dream Author, what I teach is that the way we think and feel creates all of our results. So if you, either by luck and chance in the way that happened with me or deliberately on purpose, if you can start to think, look, I'm successful, as soon as you can with any small success that you have, and if you can start to think, I'm a successful writer, as early as you can, and then you feel happy about being successful, then you are far better able to generate more success. So if I'd had that pamphlet published and thought to myself, well, you know, this isn't exactly the big time. This is just a pamphlet. You know, no one's paying me anything. It's not even going to be in bookshops. There's only 200 copies. Stephen King would not think this was literary success. <laughs> if I thought like that and felt unsuccessful, then I would not have had the necessary thought and feeling combination to drive the action that was required to create more success. Uh, which is all just a very long-winded way of saying that if you believe you are successful, then you will create success. Whereas if you believe you're failing, you'll create more failure. It's a bit like, you know, I, I can't remember who said this quote. I think it might have been Henry Ford. But somebody said, whether you believe you can or whether you believe you can't, you're probably right. Yeah, I love that. And, and that's so much a part of your whole Dream Author program, which we are going to get on to talking about in more depth. But I'm also very curious, Sophie, you do write the Hercule Poirot novels mm. now from the Agatha Christie legacy. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? That's such an interesting story. Yeah, well, I've always been a massive Agatha Christie fan uh, since the age of 12. So uh, mystery stories were always the kind I liked reading most. So as a kid, I devoured all of Enid Blyton's Secret Seven books and The Five Find Outers, which was Enid oh. Blyton's other mystery series. And then I went on to Agatha Christie at the age of 12. 
completely obsessed with her, read every word she'd ever written. But it would never in a million years have occurred to me that I would ever write one of her characters. Mm. Uh, I would never have had the idea left to my own devices. And, you know, when the idea was suggested to me, which was like 35 years or something after Agatha had died, you know, I, I hadn't spent any time thinking, Agatha Christie's dead, so somebody should write. I just assumed there aren't going to be any more Quarrow novels, Miss Marple novels, because Agatha Christie can't write anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I would never... Uh, what happened was my literary agent was at a meeting at HarperCollins, and HarperCollins published Agatha's backlist. And he was in this meeting, sitting in a room full of Agatha Christie books, because publishers love to display the books they publish in all their meeting rooms. And he was just looking at these Agatha Christie books, and he remembered that I was a big Agatha Christie fan. And so out of the blue, he just said to the HarperCollins people, hey, my author Sophie Hannah is a huge Agatha Christie fan, you guys should think about commissioning a new Poirot novel or a new Christie brand novel of some kind. Yeah. And I, I had to write it. And HarperCollins told him that will never happen because we've, we've suggested new books to the Christie family and they've always been adamant that, that they don't want any new books. So my agent actually rang me and told me that he'd suggested it and they'd said no. And I was a bit annoyed with him because I was like, look, first of all, you shouldn't suggest things like that without checking with me. Like, using my name in vain. But also, I knew, or I thought I knew, that the Christie family would never want anyone else to write Agatha's characters. Anyway, so I just thought, okay, well, nothing's changed. I never was going to be writing Poirot novels, and I never am going to be, and that's totally fine. I'm happy reading them. And then the very next day, my agent rang me again and said, the Christie family want to meet you. And I was like, what? And it turned out that what had happened was... The very next day after telling my agent, no way, the family would never want that to happen, HarperCollins had a meeting with the Christie family at which the Christie family said, this is going to surprise you, HarperCollins, but we, the family, have decided that now might be the time to consider commissioning a new book. That's yeah, just like a total coincidence of timing. And the Christie family had never heard of me. And... You know, they just made this sort of foray into suggesting it. And immediately the HarperCollins team said, huh, that's a coincidence. We had this agent in here yesterday. He thinks he's got the perfect person for this very task. So a meeting was arranged and it was all very tentative, you know, because the, yeah. the Christie family at that point was still a long way off deciding they wanted to do this. And I said to them, look, I... I I'm, would completely understand if you didn't want to do this or even if you wanted someone who wasn't me to write the book because, you know, at the time there were grander and more eminent people who seemed to me to be more likely candidates like Ruth Rendell, P.D. James, you know, grand dams of British crime. <laughs> um, so it was all very tentative, but we had a discussion about what it might look like if we decided to go ahead. And we all came away from that discussion thinking, it's quite exciting, maybe we should do this. And then if, it was a couple of months actually later, my agent got a call from the managing director of Agatha Christie Limited, and uh, he was told they want to go ahead. So, so we went ahead. And now, four books later, when we agreed that I'd write the one, I don't think any of us were thinking 
there would be four. And in fact, there's going to be five because I'm going to be writing at least one more. So it's been huge fun working with so, the finest ingredient in crime fiction, which yeah. is what I think Poirot is. It's been really, really an exciting creative adventure. Yeah, I'm sure it has. It's a great story. I love that whole coincidence thing that happened around that. So, yeah. Sophie, could you tell us then, uh, with the Dream Author Programme, where did that, that idea come from for you of setting up this program to sort of mentor and teach other writers about the whole business, I guess, of writing? Dream Author is a, a coaching program for writers. So it's not, it's not a writing course, although the minute you start doing it, your writing improves in every yeah. possible way because of everything that it does involve. But the focus is on coaching, not on teaching you how to write. So I had benefited massively from coaching as a writer and as a person. And so I was becoming more and more passionate about coaching and how it could help people. That was one thing that was happening. And that kind of, in a way, wasn't a new thing for me because I've always had a, as well as an interest in poetry and crime fiction, I've always had an interest in self-help. And at the point when I got into coaching and saw how it helped me, I had already published a self-help book called How to Hold a Grudge. So basically it's a book about how to feel so much better by embracing and allowing and processing negative emotion rather than telling yourself you're a bad person for having it in the first place and trying to bottle it up. So I'd already written that self-help book. Then I discovered coaching. My life was massively transformed by that. And at the same time, I was starting to become more aware that all the writers who I chatted to, just like writer friends of mine, but also writers who approached me wanting help and advice about how to get published. And, and so in total, that's like a lot of writers. I was yeah. talking to a lot of writers because this was before the pandemic and I was traveling all the time doing events, meeting other writers, both that I was on panels with, but also people who came to my events and they'd come up to me afterwards and say, I'm a writer, but I don't know what to do next. And what I started to notice was that something I'd learned from being coached myself, which is that our thoughts and not the external circumstances we're in create our feelings. So in other words, to go back to my little pamphlet, my pamphlet being published and having 200 copies printed did not create my feeling of success. My thought created it. And I could have looked at that same circumstance, pamphlet being published, 200 copies. I could have looked at that same factual circumstance and had a completely different thought, like successful writers get paid a hundred grand advance for their books. I've been paid nothing for this pamphlet. Therefore, I'm not a successful writer. Mm -hmm. So it was my thought and what I chose to make the factual circumstance mean that created my feelings, not the circumstance itself. So through being coached as a client, my life had just been turned around by this realisation that it's our thoughts and perceptions and beliefs about the facts create our feelings not the facts themselves which gives you when you realize that you, you have so much more power yeah. over uh, so I was I sort of had that massive eureka moment in my own coaching and so I started to notice that all these writers I was talking to all the time really believed that 
you know, when they were describing their writing situation to me and what was the problem for them, they thought they were describing facts that were objectively a problem, whereas often what I could hear was that the facts were just neutral or even favourable, in my opinion, but what they were making those facts mean was something bad. And there were some really extreme examples of this. So, you know, I had one writer friend who was wandering around feeling terribly sort of almost like doomed and negative and my career is basically on the downward trajectory and should I maybe even give up? It's all going so badly. He was feeling this way while having been on the New York Times bestseller list for something like 10 weeks. At a, like his books, it had been number one for ages and then it was still like in the top five. And he was going around feeling like a terrible failure. And I knew that there was no point saying to him, you shouldn't feel like that because your book is a massive success because it wasn't the sales of his book that had the power to create his feelings. It was what he was thinking about his book, his whole situation. So that was one extreme example. And then there was another extreme example of a writer that I spoke to who had just signed quite a big deal with a big five publisher, a two book deal. And he was wandering around feeling guilty and depressed and miserable and like a failure because before signing this deal, he had a stroke of bad luck happen to him in his writing life. Basically, he'd had a book that had been hugely successful. And then his editor had left the publishing house shortly after that. The editor who replaced his, to whom he was just sort of automatically assigned, not only didn't sort of like his books particularly, but according to him, was jealous of this former editor's huge success with his last book and so didn't really make much of an effort so his next book didn't sell very well I think it sold a lot lot less well so the publisher then dropped him and this embedded in his mind a narrative of failure Mm. even after he wrote another book and signed a a really good two-book deal with a more commercial publisher, better able to sell more copies of his books in future, the traumatic failure narrative was the one he was putting all his mental energy on, and so he was still feeling like a failure. Mm. So this was actually the thing that really made me think, I must create a coaching programme for writers, because I remember talking to him, and I said to him, okay, you've told me the narrative of doom and failure. I said, let me tell you, how I think about your situation based on the exact same fact. So same things happening in the world, same number of sales of each book. I said, the way I think about you is you're clearly someone who can create new and different success over and over again, because your first novel won, and this was long before the, um, the one that sold masses as copies, but he, he, his first novel he entered it for a first novel competition and it won first prize and it got published. And that led to him writing a series, which were not sort of massively best-selling, but they were very highly acclaimed. So he had this series published based on this competition win. Then he wrote a slightly different subgenre of book. It was still crime, but it was a different kind of crime. And that, that, was the one that sold, I mean, I think it sold 750,000 copies. Wow. It was 
a huge success and made him a lot of money. Then came the things going wrong at the publishers and mm. he left. And then, even after all that, and while in a deep depression, he managed to write another book that attracted a decent two-book deal from a big five publisher. So if I were you, what I might be thinking is, I've proved that things can go really wrong and I can still come back and create new success for myself. I must be amazing. I'm going to assume that whatever goes wrong in future, that I can just do that again. Like once you learn the, the mental tools necessary to create success, you can literally reproduce that and do it over and over again. Mm. I said, you know, that, that is another way that you could think about those exact same facts. And he just looked at me and said in a tone of mild puzzlement, he said, <laughs> he said, wow, he said, that's really weird. He said, if I thought about what's happened in the way you're thinking about it, then I wouldn't need to be depressed at all. <laughs> I was like, yes, that is what I'm suggesting. <laughs> I'm strongly suggesting that you don't need to be depressed at all. You could think, I'm clearly a brilliant writer, because if I wasn't, I would not have created success three times in, in such a short period of time, and I can do it again. And so that seemed to really change the way he looked at things, and I thought, I've got to do this dream author thing. Mm -hmm. I've got to, because I thought of all the writers who'd come to my events or emailed me via my website and said things like, you know, I really want to write a book, but I'm 65, so I'm probably too old. Or I really want to write this book, but I've, I've started it three times and I, I I'm just can't think how to finish it. And all these situations where people were creating suffering for themselves mm -hmm. and creating results that they don't want by imagining that what they believe is the actual truth. Right. Uh, and sometimes what we believe is the truth, but very rarely. So, you know, writers are believing all these reasons why they can't succeed and they're mostly just made up in their heads. So I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to create Dream Author. I, I had the name Dream Author in my mind anyway because I have been planning to write a sort of how-to book, how to be your own dream author rather right. than publisher's dream author, but how to be an author who knows what your dreams are, has chosen them on purpose, and knows how to make them come true. So it's going to be a book, and then when I had this idea for the coaching program, I thought, right, this is the perfect name for it. It is absolutely perfect. So you mentioned a couple of the topics there, Sophie, that you cover, and I know a big part of the dream author program is this mindset and thinking about is your version of success, setting goals, actually naming your dreams, that sort of thing. What are some of the other things that people have come to you with as issues and that you've taken on as part of the Dream Author program? Well, anyone who joins Dream Author, so, so Dream Author, is, it's a membership program and I do all the coaching myself, whether it's written coaching or one-to-one -one Zoom coaching or coaching in a, in a webinar. There's also now an advanced Dream Author program because people who do the first program don't want it to stop because once it becomes a sort of regular part of your life and you apply the Dream Author concept and you get coaching, most people who experience that just want to carry on because 
it's really useful to do it regularly and, and people love the fact that they can get coaching from me whenever they want or need it. I may have to change this because I wouldn't want to have too many members at any given time if it meant that I couldn't provide the service I'm providing yeah. at the moment. At the moment, everyone who wants coaching can get it quickly. So people are finding it hugely helpful and it's making a difference. People are starting out saying things like, I just don't even dare think of myself as a writer. And after a bit of coaching, they're signing multi-hundreds of thousands of pounds deals. Obviously not everybody. Yeah. Almost everybody has experienced massive transformation. There have been quite a few big money deals, but sometimes it's just like someone who thought they'd never find a publisher. And then we think about their situation differently which leads them to feel different, then they take different action and then they get the result that they've always wanted. So the way it's set up at the moment, anyone can join. You go to the website and there's an Enroll Now page. You click on the Enroll Now page, having read all the stuff, you can just sign up. You pay with your credit card, it's all automatic and then you remember. So, So that means that people join and I don't know until they've joined what their issue is. And for lots my dream authors they'll have a whole range of issues over time you know they might start out with an issue of you know I feel guilty whenever I write because I feel as if I should be looking after my family and how can I justify spending any time on writing when it might never earn me any money and is it just self-indulgent so they might come in with that issue then I'll coach them on that and 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 we'll solve that problem looking at the facts looking at what you're currently thinking, looking at what result those current thoughts have created, and then thinking, okay, what result do we want to have instead? And how can we get to that better result, the chosen result, via different thoughts? And training the brain to think differently, which a lot of people think is going to be impossible. But after a couple of months in Dream Author, everyone is thinking radically differently from how they were when they came in. Because... Once you realise that how often your thoughts are not actually true facts and that you have a choice, therefore, of how to think about it, it's so empowering. People want to start straight away deciding how to think differently. And and then it's just a question of practising the habit. So anyone at the moment can join. And the range of issues that we coach on and that people come with and that people deal with it is, it's almost unlimited. So it can be anything from, I've sent out my manuscript to 10 agents and they've all rejected it. What should I do? One of the things I do in Dream Author is uh, I teach a method of editing called literary diagnostics, which I believe is 100 times more effective than what's generally called editing and you know what the, the book industry means by editing. So I demonstrate how to do literary diagnostics and the different approach required Uh, and often that literary diagnostics approach leads writers to be able to make certain changes to their submission package so that then agents saying no turns into agents saying yes Mm. Um, it's super simple and easy to do but most people wouldn't know how to do it or wouldn't know how to, to begin to solve that problem without that help so we do a lot of that but yeah the problems can be why are agents not taking my submission package how can we fix it and practical problems 
Then it could be, you know, my book has just come out and it's selling really well. Why do I feel terrible when I expected to feel brilliant? So every possible issue comes up in Dream Author. There's so many strands to the program. And actually, in terms of the Dream Author content, there is a lot because obviously I'm biased, right? Because I created it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I created it to be the best possible resource for any writer at any stage of their career. Yeah. And that is what I passionately believe it is. And so because I want it to be that, there is masses of content on there. There is everything everyone could possibly need. And one of the things that's there is all the archived videos of the Dream Author webinars and coaching calls since Dream Author began. Yeah. So if you join, you can not only get coached on your issue whatever it is in the weekly webinar that's live but you can also if you have the time and want to watch all the old webinars and anyone who did that would hear me coaching on such a wide range of issues i don't think there's an issue that it's possible for a writer to have or an aspiring writer to have that we haven't covered in dream <laughs> the brilliant thing about it is in each webinar i will coach on maybe usually on average about five or six questions or problems that have been sent in. And if you've sent an issue in that you want me to coach you on, then you might listen to the webinar or attend the webinar live to get the coaching on your issue that I've told you is going to be in that webinar. But while listening out for the coaching on your issue, you will also hear me coach on five other writers' issues. Yeah. And absolutely guaranteed, you will learn as much and be able to help your own situation as much by hearing me coach other writers on completely different issues as you will from hearing me coach on your issue. Because when we hear other writers being coached, we're like, oh yeah, of course, that's what they should do and why can't they see it? And, mm -hmm. But it's much harder to see that when it's your own situation. Yeah, and of course, because I've been a bit of a lurker, Sophie, you know, I'm in the Dream Author program, but I haven't actually sent you any particular issues yet. I, I will be doing that at some stage, but I do, I do listen in to the webinars and I'm still catching up on a lot of the content. But so many of these issues, if you're having it as a writer, you can bet that there's a whole lot of other writers out there that are having the same issue. Totally. And the other thing is, I mean, I always say to everyone when they join, like, there's no way you can fall behind. So, so there are some dream authors who ask for coaching and who ask for literary diagnostics and they want to like participate in every possible way. But the large majority of people who join dream author like to do it sort of privately and on their own. So they will watch all the webinars, avidly listen and consume and learn all the stuff and do the exercises, but they actually don't want to have to send things to me or, or like do it in a, in a very actively joining in with, a, with the community way. So they'll watch everything. They'll listen to the podcast. There's a weekly podcast, but they don't want to be emailing with me. And, and that's fine. Like that is just as helpful. And the, the coaching program that I belong to, the one that I joined years ago that inspired me to create Dream Author, and I'm still a member, I that's how I choose to engage with it. I listen to everything. I watch everything. I do all I do my exercises. I never send anything in. And I've only once 
asked for coaching because with my life, which is quite busy, mm. that's how it works best for me. And I find that I learn really effectively just by listening quietly at home. So I just chose the way that worked for me and yeah. did it that way. Other people do the same with Dream Author, and that's absolutely fine. I'm, I say in the welcome video, which people watch as soon as they join, there isn't a right way to do Dream Author. Some people do all the things, some people do a couple of the things. So that is how I approach it and how I encourage everyone to think of it. Yeah, for sure. Sophie, I don't know how you feel about talking about this and, and if you if we can only just touch on it, I appreciate that because I know it is a part of the Dream Author Program, but you do talk about a knocky draft in there, which was something that I had never heard of before. And as somebody who is a bit of a pantser with my writing, and that doesn't always work that well for me, I was really interested to hear about your knocky draft. So could you just give us maybe a little brief overview of that? Yeah, I will do. So just to contextualise it, gnocchi drafting, like literary diagnostics, is something to do with the craft of writing. It's a method that I use and that I invented, just like literary diagnostics. Like literary diagnostics, I teach all the detail of gnocchi drafting in Dream Author. Mm. And those are probably actually the main two things that are craft-related. There's a few other things as well, but... But, you know, as well as all the coaching and the, the, you know, how to think on purpose to create the feelings you need to create the results you want, there is a substantial element of, okay, this is how you actually improve your writing. Yeah. Uh, and, and the gnocchi, gnocchi draft method falls into that category. So basically, it's a method I have of planning a novel before starting to write it. I've always been a planner, but I, I haven't always been a gnocchi planner. So it's, I've called it the gnocchi plan or the gnocchi, I actually call it the gnocchi first draft method, because real gnocchi, the food, is a mixture of pasta and potato. So it's equal parts pasta and potato. So the reason I called my planning method the gnocchi method is because I started to notice at a certain point that when I finished a plan for one of my novels, I effectively had a first draft my plans were so detailed that they were first drafts. It, so when I then started to write the official first draft of a novel, I would think this doesn't feel like a first draft because I've basically in a way written the novel already. I haven't written it properly. I haven't, you know, brought each scene to life, but there is a way in which I've kind of written this book. And so I thought, you know, this is the brilliance of, of what I then call the gnocchi method. And this is what I teach in detail in Dream Author, why it works so well. But why it works so well is it enables you to get the progress you get with having finished a first draft. So most people would agree that when you finish the first draft, you are significantly far along in the process of getting your novel to exist. And finishing the first draft of your novel is significantly far along if we imagine like progress as a line, finishing the first draft is quite far along that line in the direction of finishing the book completely mm. because it fulfills so many of the functions of writing a first draft. In other words, you can get the plot structure sorted out. You can see where everything should be in relation to everything else. You can edit it once you've got a detailed plan. If you look at it and go, oh, actually that should be there, then you edit the plan 
rather than writing the mistakes into a full version of the book. So you can make all the progress that you would normally make in a first draft by doing a detailed plan. You get very far along the progress line so that you think, well, I've got this such a detailed plan. I now know what should happen where. All I really have to do is now bring to life this scene-by-scene plan that I've just painstakingly laid out. So you get that satisfaction of being further along. But at the same time, you don't subject yourself to the kind of pressure that usually appears in a writer's mind when they think to themselves, right, now I'm starting to write my book. So what happens when you sit down and write a traditional first draft? You write chapter one, you've had your thinking about your book and maybe you've done a small plan, you've sketched out a few points, but you haven't got a really detailed plan. But you think you've got enough to start a first draft and you tell yourself, I can sort out any problems in the second draft. You start writing your first draft and almost immediately your brain, which is terrified of taking a plunge and starting writing the draft, your brain immediately throws up these thoughts like, oh no, look, I've written a page and it's going wrong already. My book is already not as good as I hoped it would be. I can already see how chapter one being flawed is putting me off the whole thing and making me think maybe I can't do it. It's because our, our primitive brain is saying to itself, this is it, this is crunch time, I'm starting writing my book. So the brilliance of the gnocchi method is your brain doesn't do that. Your brain goes, I'm just writing a plan. No pressure. This isn't the book. The book is what I'll write once I'm happy with the plan. And because the plan's only a plan, of course it doesn't have to be brilliant or a great work of literature. It's just a plan. You know, nobody ever gave a Pulitzer Prize or a Booker Prize to a plan. So the pressure is totally off, enabling you to effectively create a first draft with all the detail and structural invention that requires without freaking your brain out because you're taking the plunge. Now, a lot of people say to me when I describe the the gnocchi method and why it's so good, they say, but hang on a minute, isn't that just delaying the agony? Because surely when you start the official first draft or what I now call the second draft, surely then that's when your brain freaks out. And what I say is, to a certain extent, your brain is always going to have little freakouts when you go to the next level of anything. So if you move to a slightly more demanding thing than what you were doing before, your brain is going to go, not sure about this. But the freakout that your brain has when you've got a gnocchi draft and you think, right, now I'm starting to write the book, is so much more manageable and less severe because your brain is not a fool. Your brain knows that it's so much less scary starting to write the actual book when you've got something as solid as a gnocchi plan waiting to be implemented. I mean, if I had to, this evening, cook a meal for 20 people, let's say I have to cook a three-course meal for 20 people and it has to be delicious, I would be terrified because cooking's not my thing anyway. But if I knew that I had to cook a meal for 20 people with a chef, like, say, Gordon Ramsay or Jamie Oliver, they're in the room with me telling me exactly what to do, then I would be much less scared. 
I'd still be a bit scared. I'd still rather go, look, Jamie, you do it. And I'll go and put my feet up and wait till it's ready to eat. But of course, I'd be much less scared. So if you've got that gnocchi draft and you've edited it and you know that the structure and everything is working as you want it to, and you know that the writing process can be as simple as you look at what's next in your gnocchi plan and you just write that scene. So what scene do I write next? Here's the plan for that scene. All I have to do is make these things happen. And here's a list of them. And it becomes so much easier. So yes, your brain will have a little, but it, it, it won't be paralyzing in the way that it can be when you're having to bring the whole thing into being, like create the structure and make the plot decisions at the same time as trying to write as well as possible and bring it all to life as vividly as possible. Mm. Yeah, well, if I ever finish the book I'm working on now, I'll definitely be trying a knocky draft for my next one after hearing about the benefits of it. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Sophie, one of the other things that you talk a bit about, quite a lot about, that comes up in Dream Author is this idea that authors need to take control of their writing career, more responsibility perhaps in terms of their publishing of their work. Can you talk a bit about that and what sort of mistakes you sometimes see authors making when it comes to actually going to a publisher or getting a contract in, in that side of the business? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it, it's important to distinguish between what we can control and what we can't control. I'm a firm advocate of using what power we have in an appropriate way, which a lot of writers don't do a lot a, a lot of writers are so grateful to get a publishing contract that they immediately without realizing it kind of fall into a pattern that disempowers them which is where they expect every initiative every suggestion every development to come from the publisher and they don't feel that they can uh, ask for anything that the publisher hasn't suggested so what often happens is authors will and this comes up in Dream Author a lot. People ask for coaching on, on this kind of thing really, really often. It'll be things like, my publisher said they do this, you know, said they do this or that marketing initiative, then nothing happened. Then they said, sorry, they do it by this date, then still nothing happened. And I, you know, I'm feeling really disappointed and I don't want to be a difficult author and nag them. But And situations like that where, where writers are, noticing what their publisher is or isn't doing and feeling terrible because their thought is the publisher should be doing this and they're not. I can't do it because I'm just the author. And so if you're thinking like that, you're going to feel powerless. You're going to feel slightly trapped. You're going to feel resentful. So what I advocate is accepting the things we can't control. We can't force our publisher to do anything. We can't force readers to buy our book so that it gets to number one. We can't force every Amazon reviewer to give us a five-star review rather than a one-star review. So those things we can't control, we should just accept that we can't because so many people create unnecessary suffering for themselves by trying to control things that they can't possibly control. But what we can always do as authors is think, right, well, there's two questions that I advise people to start with. One is, what result do you want? And the other is, how do you want to feel? Mm. So what result do you want? Let's say what you want is amazing publicity for your book. 
that's the result you want. If your thought is, I mean, obviously we have loads of thoughts, but like the main, let's just say the main dominant thought is my publisher should be making this happen. My publisher should be creating publicity for my book and they're not, they're not doing anything. If that's your main thought and the result you want is amazing publicity for your book, that thought is not going to generate the feelings that fuels the actions that creates that result because your thought is about what your publisher should be doing and isn't doing. That doesn't move things forward. Mm. Looking at something that is the case and deciding it shouldn't be and then producing the feeling of resentment. I mean, we all do it, right? We're human beings. Yeah. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it's totally avoidable, but when you realize that the result you most want is amazing publicity for my book, you pretty soon see with a bit of dream author coaching that the feeling you want to be having is something like determined or creative or optimistic. Let's pick determined actually, because that's a good one. A feeling of determination is far more likely to drive the actions that you could take that might generate amazing publicity rather than the feeling of powerlessness and resentment that comes from focusing on what you think your publisher should be doing and isn't doing. So some of the more successful sort of coachings that I've done are precisely this kind of situation where I say to the author, okay, if you stopped focusing on what you think your publisher should be doing that they're not doing and started instead focusing on the question of what is it within my power to do right now, very often they find that it's in their power to send a jolly and upbeat email to the publisher and say, hey, let's get the publicity ball rolling. Here are three ideas I've had. Can we have a Zoom meeting to chat about it? I can't wait to get going with the publicity. And if you bring the energy and the determination in that way, your publisher, well, in all the instances where I've coached people, it works. The publisher kind of goes, oh, the author wants to get going on publicity. Yeah, we should do that. And they join in with the positive thought and feeling. Whereas if they get an email from an author saying, well, you said you do this and you haven't, and it's not okay. And I think you should do this and you've let me down. And the author comes at it in a kind of villain and victim way. Yeah. The, the publisher might do something in response to that. They might do publicity, but they're not going to be doing it fueled by a good energy and it's not going to be as effective. So that's the kind of thing that in terms of control, where are all the areas where you could take responsibility, where you're abdicating responsibility? Yeah, uh, I love that. I think that's it's such a positive mindset. Like you say, it takes you out of that victim mentality and pushes you into actually taking action, which is going to have a result of some kind. And a crucial thing that actually is applicable to to all of life and not just to writing and in fact we do it in in the dream author advanced program there's a strand of the program called dream author for life where we do regular life coaching it's usually about once a month it happens it's a, an opportunity for dream authors to get coached on issues that are just life issues nothing to do with writing and the reason i introduced that for the advanced program is that so many people who do the dream author program have said wow, this is transformative, not only in my writing career, but in every aspect of my life. 
like bringing the dream author approach to everything, relationships, the day job, parenting, weight loss, or just like anything, anything that crops up. And so one of the things that is like a really useful tip just for everyday life is realizing the difference between, let's just use a, a random made up person. Let's say Fred is doing something that you really do not like. Fred, you think Fred just should not be doing that thing. And Fred might be a publisher, he might be your teenage son, he might be your husband, whatever. Most people in that situation will find themselves thinking, he shouldn't be doing that. He should be doing that instead. It's not okay with me that Fred is doing this and not that. Something's gone wrong here. Fred has got it wrong. He shouldn't be doing what he's doing. And when we think like that, the emotions we generate are resentment, kind of powerlessness, really, because whenever we tell ourselves that something that is happening shouldn't be happening, then we are, and this is not my original thought, this comes from Byron Katie, who is a, a guru of some kind, but, you know, I know people sneer at gurus and guruishness, but I think she's dead right on this particular point. Whenever we argue with reality and say something shouldn't be the case when it already is, we're just going to create a feeling of kind of the emotional equivalent of banging our head against a brick wall because that thing is happening. So it doesn't serve us in any way to believe that it shouldn't be. And instead, if something is happening that we don't like and would like to change, a far more effective way to empower ourselves is to think, this is what's happening. I accept that it's currently what's happening. I have the power to choose what I want to think about it. What I want to think is, I don't like it. Now what can I do? So that difference between that shouldn't be happening and that is happening, I don't like it, now what? Mm. That's so much more productive. Um, so the way I approach it in, in Dream Author is, uh, I say, I don't think there actually are any shoulds. If Fred is doing something that I really don't like, my understanding of the reality is he neither should nor shouldn't be doing it because shoulds don't exist. Unless you believe in some kind of amazing you know, force of destiny or fate that knows authoritatively what should and shouldn't happen, which I personally don't necessarily, I mean, I, I hope that's true, but I, I don't necessarily believe it. In which case, shoulds and shouldn'ts aren't real. We've we just invented them. So the, the way I like to look at it is, everything that does happen is in fact what should happen. Because if I believe that everything that happens should happen, or if I behave as though I believe it and accept everything that happens as though it's something that should be happening, then I have so much more power. I don't waste any time arguing with reality. And instead I'm free to think this is happening. So obviously it should be, and I don't like it. So maybe the reason it should be happening is to remind me of my power in this situation, because if I don't like it, then my next question is, what can I do about it? Can I do anything to change this reality I don't like into a reality I do like and that I think would be better for the world? And maybe the reason this thing I don't like should be happening is precisely so that I can 
get to work to create something better than it. Maybe that's what should be happening. And it's just so much more empowering. And it makes you realize when you see things that way, how many people waste so much energy just carping in a negative way about what shouldn't be the case that already is. Uh, and, and that energy they could be using to think, okay, I accept that this is the case. For sure, it's an opportunity of some kind. Where's that opportunity? You know, I don't like this thing. That means there's an opportunity for me to create a new and different thing. Let's put my energy into that rather than pointlessly arguing with reality. Because as Byron Katie says, when we argue with reality, we lose, but only 100% of the time. <laughs> yeah, great advice. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think people would be gathering just from our conversation all the things that you do. You you have a lot on your plate. You do the Dream Author Program. I don't know if you write multiple books at once, but you do write a lot. It's, it's your job. Uh, you teach. Have you got any tips on time management for people? Because I'm thinking that must be something that you've had to really juggle in terms of getting everything done. 100%, yeah. Time management is probably my biggest challenge uh, and I've got much, much better at it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a big issue for me. And again, it is something that is prominent in the Dream Author program. We do a whole module on time, time management, scheduling. There's a workbook all about it because the way we think about time and energy and you know, what we can fit on our plates is, is absolutely crucial. The crucial thing is energy, not time. When people talk about time management, what they almost always mean is energy management because we can't actually manage time. Time just does its thing and, you know, moves on at the pace it moves on. We can't do anything about that. That is definitely in the category of things we can't control. I can't try and control time, but I can control my activities my plans and my energy levels. So uh, in Dream Author, I very much approach time management as time and energy management. The starting point is that the way we think about time is crucial. In, in today's world, there's a lot of people who think, I'm just too busy. There's too much on my plate. It's overwhelming. Uh, and they feel overwhelmed by the number of things they have to do or they, they think they feel overwhelmed because of how much they have to do but overwhelm is not created by number of tasks you could have one task to do and still feel overwhelmed in fact that's often a sign of you know being close to a burnout state where you wake up on a particular day you have one thing to do that day you've got to email an invoice to somebody and the thought of having to do that one thing on that day feels overwhelming. And you just think, oh, I'd rather stay in bed. Uh, and I used to suffer from overwhelm horrendously. I, I, I always like pushed through it and did all the things I needed to do. But I've always been sort of very gung-ho and creative about like, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can do that. I always want to take on new and exciting things. But then behind the scenes, at least until recently, I would panic and think, Oh, I'm so overwhelmed by all the things I've committed to do. And this, this was how I entered the coaching world as a client. That was what I needed help with. And the first coach, I actually wrote about this. It's a self-help book about how, how to be as happy as we can. 
but it's also a kind of memoir about like my slightly hilarious and bonkers journey in the world of life coaching and the coaching I got. And so I've actually written about this in that book. My first ever session with a life coach, I said, look, my problem is time, overwhelm, too much to do. My workload is oppressive. I feel like it's a tyrant that's stalking me. I feel like I'm buried under an avalanche of work. And the coach listened to all this and she said, the problem is not the amount, you know, the number of items you have on your to-do list. The problem is the way you're thinking. You are thinking and believing that work is a tyrant oppressing you and stalking you. And so, of course, you're going to feel oppressed and stalked. But actually, your work isn't a tyrant. You've literally just made that up and nothing is stalking you. You've just got some tasks on a list. You could delete as many of them as you wanted. You could decide, I don't want to do all of these things anymore, so I'm only going to do three of them. So when she said that, I was like, no, I, I can't, like, I want to do it. And she's like, right, you want to do all of them, but you don't have to. You're choosing to. So if you're choosing to because you want to, then that's fine. But you'll feel so much better if instead of thinking my to-do list is a tyrant that's oppressing me, if you instead think I've got a load of fun things to do and I'm, I've, I've chosen to do them because I want to, already you feel less oppressed and you feel more empowered. I, I literally felt a kind of eureka moment. Like it was like that moment in a crime drama where, where the detective goes, and the true culprit was, <laughs> it's like the kaleidoscope shifting and everything looks different. And I actually physically experienced that change. And I was like, so if I just think to myself, there's a certain number of tasks. Do I want to do them all? If I don't, then I cannot do some of them. That is a choice I have. And if I choose to do all of them, then the next thing I can think is, how can I do all of this in a way that feels good and never feels oppressive? But what it requires is that you take responsibility. And th this is like, I guess, the challenge of any kind of coaching, right? I, I love a challenge. So when that coach told me that most of my problems were created by my thoughts, I loved that. I was like, wow. First of all, this is an amazing twist. But second of all, fantastic. If I'm creating it all, I can solve it all. That, that's why this branch of coaching that I was trained in and that I, that I practice is so great. But it's only great if you are someone who wants to empower yourself, solve your own problems and stop being a victim of anything. Some people do not want to do that. Some people feel much more comfortable believing that they can't solve the problem because it's a factual problem in the world that is inflicted on them. And those people generally are quite resistant to being told that it's their thoughts. So I love all that. I love taking responsibility for every thought that I think, choosing it on purpose, for every feeling I have, every result I create in my life. You know, let's say I leave my house and someone rushes up to me and says, you're a hideous old bat who writes terrible books. I don't have to be upset by that. I can choose what I want to think. And if I choose to think, haha, that's funny that someone said that, aren't people different? Isn't humanity fascinating and varied? Then I'm not going to be upset by it. And it wouldn't upset me because yeah. I don't agree. I don't agree. 
you know, despite having frizzy hair, it's okay if I've got frizzy hair because like, I'm just a writer. No one's going to come to me for hair tidiness tips. So my hair is fine. I think it looks nice. You know, I don't mind it. And I think my books are amazing. So like if someone comes and tells me I'm a hideous old bat who writes terrible books, I'm going to go, yeah, I don't agree with that. And given that I don't agree with it, I don't need to be upset about it. Now, most people, it would not even occur to them that if someone was mean to them, they had the choice to think, this doesn't matter to me and not feel upset. And when you realise that, it's so much more empowering. But there are people who are resistant to this kind of coaching. And you can always tell because people say things like, hang on a minute, isn't this victim blaming? Like if someone tells me I'm hideous and it's my responsibility to choose what to think so that I won't be upset, isn't that victim blaming and saying that if I'm upset, then it's my thoughts and not their bad behavior that's caused my upset. What I would say is we are always free to think that someone's behaved appallingly. I, I constantly think people behave appallingly, but those are the very people to whom I do not want to give any power over my emotional experience. So the way I like to do it is to take full responsibility and go, I am nobody's victim. Fred behaved appallingly. I'm going to respond to that by thinking, A, that I don't rate Fred very highly, and B, I'm not going to let someone as silly as Fred upset me. That to me is, that approach is, is the opposite of victim blaming. We are all occasionally on the receiving end of bad behavior, but does it serve us well to think of ourselves as a victim in the sense of, powerless to you know now i have to feel this because this thing has happened i think it's much better to think okay this has happened how can i immediately empower myself to choose how i want to respond to it it's also empowering so that's what i love about the program but if you think back to yourself as a younger writer writing for you was a hobby in the early days you didn't really think about it as being a career when you were you know younger but if you could go back maybe to, it might be just your early first days of publication or whenever you choose, what advice would you give your younger writing self now with everything that you've learnt? Well, this is interesting. And this is another reason why I was so keen to create Dream Author because from where I was at when I invented Dream Author and created it, I could look back on my younger self as a writer at every stage and all the developments of my writing career. And my path to success as a writer was long. And, you know, I, I haven't sort of gone into detail about it, but basically to race through it. So I wrote as a kid, wrote as a teenager, tried to get my first novel published at the age of 16 and sent it to every publisher. And it was rejected quite rightly. It was not good, but I didn't realise that at the time. I thought it was wonderful. And then I wrote, I think, four subsequent novels between the ages of 16 and 21. I wrote at least four of the novels, maybe five, sent them off, they got rejected. Then I wrote the first novel that went on to be my first published novel, which actually wasn't a crime novel. So I, I got into crime a bit later, but I before I was published as a crime writer, I wrote three kind of weird quirky comedy type novels like 
human drama with a lot of black comedy thrown in. And I wrote the first one of those and I knew that it was a big step up. I kind of felt as though I'd shed my immature writing identity that had written the immature novels that didn't get published. And this felt so much better. And I thought, this is it. This is the one. But then that was a slog, getting that published. So first of all, my my agent said, this won't do at all. There's some good stuff in it, but it's a complete mess. And again, she was dead right. But it was like, I was so gutted to hear that because I'd worked on it so hard. And I expected that she would just go, this is amazing and so much better. And she didn't. So that was like so upsetting to me at the time. Then we worked on it. Then she started submitting it and it didn't get published and it didn't get published. And it was getting to the point where I thought I'm going to have to give up on this book. And then it got published by Heinemann. And that was like one of the great, most joyous days of my life when I heard that it was going to be published. And then it came out, but it didn't do, I mean, it did okay, but it it didn't do well. The sales were not good. They were just like very, very average for a first novel. But that, I still was pleased that it had come out. But then the next two, in particular the third one in this kind of series of weird, quirky comic novels, really didn't sell well at all. So then I had a a bit of a break thinking, right, I need to regroup, decide what I'm doing, because I had thought that publication was success. But then I'd realised that you can get published, and then if your books sell less and less with each one, then that's not good. So that's failure again. And I was like, huh, hadn't been expecting to encounter failure again. I thought once you got published, that was it. Anyway, so when I got to the point where I was thinking about starting Dream Author, by that point, I'd published loads of crime novels and I had become successful by any standards. But what was fascinating to me was that I looked back at the journey that had taken me to that point And I realized that there was a very simple thing that had been going on. So I'd created success for myself as a writer. There was no doubt about that because here I was now in the success. But I saw how the thought, feeling and action combinations that created all my good results were the ones where I'd thought, you know, so let's say I'd had a disappointment. Let's say after the fourth novel got rejected when I was about 18 or something, I'd feel devastated and terrible and consider giving up. And then eventually, because I'm naturally quite optimistic, I would kind of buck up again and I would have a new thought like, do you know what? I'm not going to give up because there's no doubt that however long this takes, I am going to succeed that thought would then generate feelings of determination and that would fuel the actions that created whatever success I achieved next. But what I realized looking back, and again, this was another eureka moment, is that if someone had, if Dream Author had existed when I was 16 and I joined it and learned everything that I know now, I could have probably halved the time it took me to become properly successful and spared myself 98% of the suffering that I went through by thinking differently, by realizing that a rejection letter does not mean you're crap and you'll never make it. It just means, okay, so this wasn't the time. So this is an opportunity to hone the strategy 
and we're still on track for success. And if I'd have believed that then, I wouldn't have wept for days when someone rejected my book. I'd have just been like, okay, so it didn't work that time, so it'll be the next time. And so what's great about being able to do Dream Author now is that I have a really concrete aim. My aim is to help writers who emotionally and psychologically were where I used to be, or even in a worse situation, because I had a huge advantage, which is that naturally I am a very upbeat and optimistic person. My default setting is happy, can do, let's go for it. And that's a massive asset, just a natural asset that I happen to have. So I bounced back relatively quickly, but there are lots of writers and lots of, lots of them who joined Dream Author who they find it so hard to feel determined, to believe that it will work, to motivate themselves after they've had several rejections. So knowing what I know now, I can look at their situations and go, look, what's happened is that someone sent you a letter and you feel disappointed. That's fine. That's the unavoidable bit. If you send your book to a, an agent and they write back and say, no, I don't want to represent this, when they could have said, yes, I do, human beings in that situation will feel disappointed and that's fine what we need to do though is realize that feeling disappointed a doesn't mean anything like the fact that you've had a rejection letter it doesn't mean things aren't going to work i ought to give up on myself it doesn't mean any of that it just means i got a result that wasn't the one i was hoping for so you feel the disappointment but you don't make it mean anything terminal for your hopes and dreams as a writer. So having seen the way in which I do that now compared to the way in which I didn't do it as a younger writer because I just didn't know how, I can see how I could have spared myself so much suffering, saved myself so much time, got to all my goals quicker, and that was a big motivator in creating the Dream Author Programme. Yeah, I love that you've used that experience that you've had and now you're you know, shining the light, I guess, for other people, like you say, so that they can jump those, jump through those hoops quicker and avoid some of those. Yeah, yeah. And it really, it really accelerates it because a coach who wasn't a writer could help writers in the way that I am, using the same principles about what we make things mean versus mistaking things for facts. But I have the advantage that anyone who's in Dream Author is a writer, and so I'm already well-known as a writer. Mm. So when I say, look, I know you think this means this, but it doesn't mean that. It just means that. So you can think this and feel that and do this, and then you'll, you'll get your good result so much sooner than if you make it mean that. When I say that, writers think, well, she must know what she's talking about because she's a successful writer. Whereas if I was just a coach who wasn't a writer, they might go, yeah, she doesn't know anything about the writing industry, though. So it's the fact that I kind of saw that I was in this unique position because I was a certified life coach. Because having benefited from coaching so much, I decided that I wanted to certify with the same, the same organization that I get all my coaching from. So I was in this unique position. I was a life coach certified and trained by the best life coaching school in the world and I had this masses of experience as first an unsuccessful writer and then a successful writer 
And I thought, I have to use this to help writers. Like, I felt like I was just in the perfect situation to be able to do that. And it really felt like a kind of calling. It is. It's perfect. Well, before I let you go, Sophie, because I know you, you've got a lot to do, I'm sure, today, and the rain is, is just holding off <laughs> so we can get through the rest of our chat. I am currently listening to Haven't We Grown on audio, which um, is, yeah, I think it's your latest yeah. book. Is that correct? It's your latest one? Yeah. My latest book. And in England and Australia, it's called Haven't They Grown? But in America, it's called Perfect Little Children. And I always say that because some people go, oh, haven't they grown sounds good. And then they buy it and they've already read it as Perfect Little Children. So <laughs> two different titles, same book. Well, I'm getting to crunch point. I'm almost at the end and I am dying to know the answer to this mystery. But could you just tell listeners a little bit about the book and where the inspiration came from for it? Yeah, so the book is it's called Haven't They Grown? And it starts with the protagonist, who is a middle-aged mother of two. Her name is Beth, and she's taking her son to a football match. And, and the football match is a, a, a pitch or a ground or whatever you call it. That's It's an away match. So they're going away from home to take him to this away match. And Beth knows that her ex-best friend who she parted company with 12 years ago and hasn't seen since. Beth knows that Flora, the ex-friend, lives very close to this football venue. And she can't resist. She knows where, where Flora's new house is, but she's never been there because just at the time that Flora was moving, their friendship dramatically ended. But she also knows that Flora's new house is a mansion. Because again, at the time their friendship was ending, Flora had just come into a lot of money. And Beth cannot resist the impulse to go and have a nosy at her ex-friend's new mansion before dropping her son at his football game. So she goes and has a look at the house and she's, you know, kind of intrigued by it. And the reader can see that there's something unresolved about her relationship with this ex-best friend. So anyway, she ends up hanging around, spying on the house. And while she's there... A car drives up, the gates open remotely, and the car drives in through the gates and she sees Flora get out of the car. And she thinks, yep, there she is. It's definitely her, you know, 12 years older, but unmistakably Flora. And she's about to drive away before Flora sees her on the other side of the road spying on the house. And then she sees Flora open the back door of the car and she hears her shout into the car, come on, Thomas, come on, Emily, out you get. And Beth thinks to herself, oh, this is so cringeworthy. Why is she talking to these kids as though they're still little toddlers? There must be great big enormous teenagers now like my kids are. And then as she's watching five-year-old Thomas and three-year-old Emily get out of the car and She's not an unreliable narrator. She knows exactly what she is witnessing. And what she is witnessing is Thomas and Emily, the Thomas and Emily she knew 12 years ago, but they seem still to be the same age they were. They are no taller. They're no older. They appear not to have aged even a day. They're even wearing the same outfits that Beth remembers that they wore 12 years ago. 
and they appear not to have grown, hence the title, Haven't They Grown? And so that's the premise. And uh, I was so thrilled when I thought of it because I thought, that's so mysterious. I love mysteries where the reader can't even begin to speculate about what might be going on. It's like, I, I knew that if I encountered that plot scenario as a reader, I'd be like, what on earth? How on earth is this going to be resolved? It's impossible to resolve in a satisfactory way. But I thought of a way to resolve it in a satisfactory way that doesn't involve aliens or ghosts or anything silly. And I just found it irresistible. What inspired it was that I took my son to an away football match and my friend's house was nearby and I went to see if she was in and she wasn't. And from that, I just all the rest of it just appeared in my imagination because I hadn't seen my friend's kids for a few years. And so when I rang her doorbell and imagined her opening the door, I imagined seeing her kids. I was like, oh, see her and the kids. But I realized that I was thinking of the kids as they were as I'd last seen them. And then I said to myself, oh, of course, they wouldn't look like that anymore. And then I was like, oh, but what if they did? And, and it all, you know, followed from there. Yeah. The writer's mind is a wonderful thing. Well, as soon as we finish chatting, I am going to sit down and finish listening to the rest of it because I really need to find out the answer. (laughs) I hope you enjoy the the ending. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Well, Sophie, it's been so great chatting to you. We could talk forever. But before I let you go, could you maybe, off the top of your head, what would be one top tip you would give to any writers out there who are listening in terms of, advancing their writing or their writing career i mean it's, it's going to sound like a repeat of things i've already said but notice what you are thinking and believing about your writing situation write down all your thoughts about your your current writing situation whatever it is so if you want to write a book but haven't yet write down your thoughts about that if you have written a book and it hasn't found a publisher yet write down your thoughts about that then look at all those thoughts and ask yourself, is this true? Is there anything else I could think instead that is equally true, but that would produce a better feeling, more likely to generate the actions that will create success? Mm. And then having looked at the thoughts that you're already sort of unintentionally thinking, choose on purpose some thoughts that you would like to practice thinking deliberately from now on, that are more likely to create the feelings that will get you to where you want to be. So that's my top tip. But I mean, an equal, an equal top tip would be join Dream Author. <laughs> Before I have to start limiting memberships, now is a great time to join if you think you'd be interested because the day is not too far off when I'll have to start limiting it. So join it. It is the best value for money you will ever come across i don't know what it works out as in australian what yeah works out as in australian dollars but in english pounds it's 600 pounds for a 14 month program Mm. where you've got hundreds of hours of coaching videos already in the archive to watch you've got written resources you've got workbooks exercises you can have coaching anytime you want from me throughout the 14 months you can attend live webinars, there's a chat room, there's, it, it's just amazing. So, so that would be my other top tip. Join Dream Author and you'll find it at dreamauthorcoaching.com. 
Great. That was going to be my next question. And what about any, anyone that wants to look up you and your books, Sophie? My website address is sophiehanna.com and that's where you will find all the information about my all my books, my Poirots, my psychological thrillers, like Haven't They Grown? Oh, and one other thing that I haven't mentioned yet, but in case people um, want to listen to me banging on even more, my How to Hold a Grudge book led to the creation of How to Hold a Grudge podcast. Oh. And that's on all the usual places, iTunes, Spotify. It's all about how we can use the fact that people regularly piss us off in life to actually grow and become more forgiving and more calm and at peace and less resentful by holding grudges in the right way. So if, if you want to listen to that, it's completely free and it's on all the usual podcast platforms, How to Hold a Grudge. Great. Thanks so much, Sophie, for chatting to us and uh, all the best with, with your next project. Is the next one going to be a Poirot? The next one is going to be another psychological thriller and it's also going to be the 11th book in my contemporary crime series starring Simon Waterhouse and Charlie Zayla. I've neglected Simon and Charlie for a few years while doing other things and um, my readers are getting more and more cross and writing to oh. me with increasing frequency going, where are Simon and Charlie? We want another Simon and Charlie book. Uh, and I have the perfect idea for the return of Simon and Charlie. So that's what I'm writing now. It's called The Couple at the Table. And it starts with a woman who is on her honeymoon at an exclusive couples only resort. So everyone on the resort is a couple uh, and one morning she receives a note, say an anonymous note saying, beware of the couple at the table nearest to yours. And then that night she's murdered. And the only problem is that all the suspects, all the other couples at the resort, for each of them, there is a reason why the police know that they couldn't possibly have done it. So all the evidence suggests that nobody there that night could have killed her and yet clearly somebody did because she's been murdered. Yeah. So that's the premise of the couple at the table. I can see where the Agatha Christie mystery influence yeah. has influenced your way of thinking. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, all the best with it, Sophie. And I'm going to be seeing you in the Dream Author Program and I'm going to send you yeah. a, a problem Do. at some stage. Send me a problem. <laughs> I will. Excellent. Thanks so Thank much, Sophie. For having me on. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. If you love what you hear, you can support the podcast through Patreon by clicking the Patreon link in the show notes or on the info page on the website. All Patreon supporters will receive a monthly Wisdom from the Convo Couch Roundup with curated tips from each episode and exclusive access to an extended edition of the monthly craft episode in both audio and video format, where I'll be asking my guests for their top writing tips and some curly additional questions. On a personal writing note, my current release is All We Dream. If you'd like to know more about it or any of my books, you can check out my website at pamelacook.com.au for more information. And you can connect with me through the website at writesforwomen.com on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Have a great week. 
And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. 